Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2021, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Socially Democratic is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about leading change and solving problems? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for a legal business analyst to join our class actions team. Your responsibilities will include working within a high-performance team with ownership of design and implementation of an exciting case management IT system. The role is based in sunny Melbourne and to apply go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Be part of change and fight for fair. Apply now. I'm impressed with that. That's the first time I've read that and I've just nailed it. Good for you, Stephen. Well done. Totally apply for that job. That sounds like uh, an exciting opportunity. Get around it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad and we are going overseas again today to the Big Apple, to the Empire State, to New York City, to talk to our US correspondent, Sam Schneidman. It is the mayoral elections in a week's time. Uh, Democratic voters are going to vote in their primary to select their candidate that will run off in the November uh, mayoral election, which won't matter because the Democrats are going to win it, but the primary is the most important one and they're doing a new way of voting. So that's why we thought we'd get Sam on the show to talk about it. Check it out. It's coming up in a minute. But before you do that, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon and Stitcher. And if you're an Apple Podcast leader, if you're an Apple Podcast user, please leave us a rating and give us a review on your phone. We'd love that. That would be great. Uh, and for all the updates of the latest episodes, just follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All right, let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Thursday morning in uh, downtown Melbourne. And New Yorkers are going to the polls next Tuesday, the 22nd of June, to vote in their primary for the mayor of New York City. Well, Democratic uh, voters are going to the polls in their primary to elect. No, I did say that, didn't I? Yeah, of course I did. Sorry, it's too early this morning, and this is our third do-over. Uh, so el- eligible voters for this, uh, for this primary come from the five boroughs of New York City. And uh, this is a very good trivia question. Can you name the five boroughs of New York City? Uh, Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. And to help me unpack this primary is our New York correspondent joining me from Brooklyn, New York, and probably is the most niche of topics we've ever had in terms of US elections. Samuel Wright Schneiderman. Hello. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Hello, and good to see you. Uh, as far as niche episodes, though, haven't you all had some uh, with your pop culture correspondent about various things? That, that, is, that is definitely niche. 
but I, uh, I think that in terms of picking elections to talk about, what about the Scottish elections? Okay, hey, hey that's that's a that's a country, all right. Okay. There's, yes, only five, fair, there's fair. only five million of them, and there's probably what 11, 12 million eligible voters in this one. But nonetheless, we're now talking about local government elections. I don't think I'd ever see the day that we'd be doing that on Social Democratic. So, um, but I, I'm grateful for your time, Sam, to come on and talk about it. I'm glad to be here. They say it's the second toughest job after, of course, being president. So uh, it's a big decision in front of us. And a uh, a change in the way that you can make this decision because historically you've always had first-past-the-post voting in most US elections, but you're embracing an Australian tradition in uh, preferential voting, as we call it, but you've gone and named it something stupid, which is you called it ranked choice voting. Uh, let's um, now most Australians know how preferential voting works, but we do have an audience that is US based. But do they know how ranked choice voting works? <laughs> do tell Sam how ranked choice voting works. Uh, well, yes, as you mentioned, this is the first time that we are are doing it. So uh, in in the city of New York. So the way that elections typically work in the U.S. is that um, they're simply first past the post, the person who wins a simple majority. Um, So as votes are counted in ranked choice voting elections, uh, the lower performing candidates are gradually eliminated and votes for them are redirected to those to a voter's backup choices. So. Let's take the most famous uh, example of an election step up of all time. It's the year 2000. I was going to say, that's a good trivia question. Is- I, was, I was trying to think, what is the greatest stuff of an election of all time in the United States? Yes, okay, 2000. Good, 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 good. Continue, sorry. The year 2000, it's the state of Florida. On the ballot are George W. Bush, Al Gore, and one Ralph Nader. A confusing ballot, pandemonium ensues, George W. Bush becomes president, the rest is history. Um, however, had if Florida had ranked choice voting, uh, when Nader got gets eliminated, ballots that, because he, he didn't get a high enough threshold, ballots that rank Nader as first choice and Gore as second turn into votes for Gore, increasing his total and until someone gets to 50%. In this case, it would be Gore, and he wins. So the real action happens when votes are counted. If no candidate wins a majority in the initial tally, so if no candidate gets 50% just by doing all the ballots straight up, Uh, the reallocation rounds begin and lower performing candidates are eliminated one by one. So if there are 13 candidates, then after all the first choice choice votes are tallied, the candidate in 13th place is out. People who voted for the eliminated candidate, number one, will have their ballots reallocated to their second choice pick then the 12th place candidate will be eliminated and those ballots will be reallocated and so on and so on 
until eventually one candidate ends up with the majority of the remaining uh, of the remaining votes. And I know that the efficiency of Americans in the way they're going to count this, they are going to do it that way. Like in an, and sometimes, and a lot of Australian listeners uh, who have scrutinied at an Australian election at some point in their life will have experienced this because normally what happens in an Australian count is the 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 returning officer at that particular polling booth will will just instruct the the assess, the, the counters to create two piles. Uh, well, first of all, count all the primary votes for all of the candidates and put them into the individual piles, and then he'll say, right, who are the two most? Uh, Labor and Liberal have got the two most primary votes out of all of the other candidates. And then he'll say, now just start and distribute the preferences of all the other candidates in one big hit. Thus making a far more efficient, quicker count. But there have been very fastidious returning officers who will start at the bottom and distribute the preferences all the way back through the remaining candidates. So, for example, you've just used the 13th candidate who's got the least amount of primaries, he'll say, right, distribute their number twos on their ballot paper to the remaining 12 candidates on the table, knowing full well that the only two that will remain at the end of this journey is a Labor candidate and a Liberal candidate. And I'm imagining what's going to happen in this New York primary is they're going to do the same thing. When in actual fact, you could probably look at the two candidates with the highest primary votes or you know first preferences, and say, they're going to remain in here. Let's just eliminate everyone else in one big hit and distribute all their preferences to those two candidates. That's what's going to happen, isn't it? And that's basically what you've just explained to me. And that's just going to take so much longer. And that's going to be a pain in the ass. And that's going to, that would piss Well, piss you know, off. in our fairness, in fairness, this is our first time doing this. So uh, maybe you guys should send over some, uh, some experienced vets to, to help us out. It's going to be really interesting to see how this goes. Oh, it's going to be super interesting. That's part of the reason why I want to do today's episode on this particular topic. Now, are New Yorkers embracing this method of voting? Well, I mean, embracing, I wouldn't say that quite yet. Uh, It's happening. And people are sort of, I think, trying to wrap their heads around it. This is by far the first time that many people have heard about this way of going about voting. Um, I think people, you know, uh, are uh, typically more accustomed with, um, you know, learning about uh, candidates uh, and, you know, just making their choice and sort of saying that's that. Um, It remains to be seen if this drives more engagement. Uh, from the electorate, you know, people following the news a bit more, trying to figure out who the candidates are, uh, learning about their stories and policies. Um, But voting has begun here in New York City. And um, so far, uh, there haven't been any stories about it being a clusterfuck. I saw an example of a uh, sample ballot paper. And in my, I, I know most Australians will be It's like the CVS receipt of democracy. Yeah. It's like so long. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing that was so surprising for me. I, I, I think most, most Australians listening to this will think, oh, it's just a matter of numbering from one to five. Because here's the other thing that you've also, you, I'm not sure if you mentioned your remarks, but it's optional preferential voting so you can you don't have to number how many candidates are running for the democratic primary 13 16 yeah i believe yeah i think it's 13 yep 
you don't all have, in. You don't have to number. You don't have to allocate a preference to all thirteen candidates. You only have to sixteen Democrats. Sixteen. Sorry. Good job. Just fact checked it. <laughs> nice work. Uh, you only have to place a number from one to five, but you don't yeah. even need to do that, do you? You can just go one, two, and three. Yeah. But looking at your ballot paper, you're not actually numbering. Like there's just not, there's not, there's not 16 names and then 16 boxes next to those names. And then you just get your no. pencil and you go one, two, three, four, five, six. Explain. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to do this over an audio medium video. Explain how the ballot paper works. It's a great question, Stephen. So, um, in the Australia, do you, did you guys ever have like in great grammar school? Did you ever have uh, like those standardized tests where you have to like tediously fill in the bubbles for like a hundred questions, and it's really easy to like mess up the row and the corresponding question? The Westpac Mathematics uh, comp- uh, National Competition or whatever it was it was what we had to do. Yeah. Wow. So just a math competition, not like, you know, an entrance exam or anything like that. I think uh, some, uh, some exams did do that multi-choice kind of A, B, C, D kind of set up, but not really. Life really is just so much better in Australia, isn't it? Absolutely. Continue. Well, the reason I bring this up is because um, that's how the ballot uh, is more or less organized in New York. So, for example, all the candidates are their names are listed out on the left hand side. And it's basically like looking at a spreadsheet. So, on column A, you've got your candidates listed out, you know, one through 16 or whatever. And then in columns B through B, C, D, E, F, I think that's that's five. Uh, that's numbered one through five, and then each uh, there's a cell on each row with uh, with a bubble, and you bubble in the candidate's name with the corresponding number. So if Catherine Garcia, who is one of the thirteen, one of the sixteen Democratic candidates, is uh, online is, uh, you know, she's the third down, but I want to rank her number one, I would fill in the bubble one next to her name. If Andrew Yang is, uh, you know, at the bottom, 16, because his name begins with a Y, but I want to rank him number two, I would fill in number two next to his name. But in column uh, ABC column c yeah so so column three yeah so if eric adams who is you know first on the ballot because his name begins with an a if i want to rank him third i would fill in the third bubble next to his name if i want to rank scott stringer uh fourth i would fill in the fourth bubble next to his name if i want to rank Maya Wiley fifth, I would fill in the fifth bubble next to her name. It's it's just I am only assuming that they've done it this way for it's, it's because then they can just run. Did you catch all that? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Oh yeah, I, I assume that they're they're doing this for uh, to help with the computerized counting. 
I think they're going to chuck it through a machine. I can't think of any other reason why you would do it that way. Why not just... And surely they would have researched um, pre- preferential voting systems around the world and looked at how they did it. Like just numbering a ballot next to candidates' names. What? Is so much America taking lessons from elsewhere in the world? Man, you... Nah, come on. Um, the, uh, the, the other thing I've just discovered from your, uh, very detailed, uh, uh, explanation of the voting system, are the ordering of the candidates on the ballot always done in alphabetical order? Uh, I, be- well, I think it can honestly change, uh, from state by state. Okay. But in this case, it's alphabetical order. So Adams will be at the top. Uh, yes. And he, okay, will benefit perhaps in what we'd call the donkey vote then in some degree, but it'll probably be worth not much at all in a ballot as big as this. Okay, let's talk about the campaign issue. Thank you very much for explaining that to us. I, uh, I am, <laughs> I am done for the experience. Uh, let's talk about um, <laughs> the campaign issues first before we then jump into the candidates. But I just think it'd be interesting, given that you are uh, not a native New Yorker, but you are a local um, just describe the demographics of the voting constituency in a New York uh, Democratic primary across the boroughs. I, I think there'd be a lot of diversity in the folks going out to vote. Um, but where are, where, you know, compare the voting populace of Staten Island to people in, um, you know, inner Brooklyn uh, and then Manhattan and the Bronx. What are we looking at here? So, okay, before I dive in, I must fact check myself again. Uh, the ballot is not in alphabetical order. It seems to be randomized. Ah, um, so that's cool. How, um, how, how very hair Clark Now, of them. what's that? I said, how very hair Clark of them. Yes, well, that means that Eric Adams is not going to benefit from the donkey vote, which is, um, from my opinion, good news. Uh, but uh, your question was about the demographic breakdowns of the uh, electorate, right? Correct. Across the five boroughs? Correct. Which borough do we want to start with? Yeah, I know. I was wondering. Let's start with the ones that we know and then work our way out. Let's start with uh, the, the island of Manhattan. The island of Manhattan. Well, Actually, let's you know, play a game. Let's play a game. I'm going to guess what I think the demographics are, and then you're going to correct me. I'm assuming the demographics okay. of Manhattan are this reason- is like stereotype bingo. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Upper East Side, Upper West Side, and I'm basing this all off of Seinfeld. Uh, upper East Side, Upper West Side, Upper East Side, Upper West Side. Reasonably upper class, wealthy uh, voters, um, and then nobody lives in Midtown. And then down the bottom, sort of in the West Village, it is. Um, wealthy uh, uh, tenants or landowners uh, and students. So a lot of renters and that's kind of Manhattan. That's a pretty good overview of Manhattan for sure. Uh, I would say another thing is that um, the pandemic has definitely changed the composition of the boroughs and probably Manhattan the most with a lot of people who made Manhattan their primary uh, residence of moving out of the borough and the city. Uh, So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the pandemic affects um, the voting patterns of this city. Actually, I forgot. Sorry. Harlem is in Manhattan as well. So you've also got that. It is. I never go above 23rd street. Um, The, the, it shows. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you. Um, I take it as a compliment. Uh, and obviously, you've got Harlem's got a strong multicultural vibe, um, people of color community. Talk us more about the, the, the voting block up in that part of town. Yeah, so that's true. It's a traditionally black area. They've got, uh, you know, the famous Apollo Theater, which people may have heard about, but it's also sort of ground zero for accelerating gentrification. Um, and, uh, you know, it is also a poster child for increasing income inequality and how that falls along racial lines. Um, this really is an issue that um, is uh, pronounced uh, around housing and um, how the city uh, zones itself and, uh, you know, prioritizes development. Uh, and that's, uh, that's going to be interesting to see how it's going to be interesting to see how the, um, the, uh, election plays out, uh, up there for sure. Uh, then we move across to, I don't know anything about the Bronx apart from it's the home of, um, the New York Yankees. Um, therefore, um, you know, I have no interest in the Bronx. Tell us about the Bronx. And for, and Fordham, Fordham University, uh, it is uh, more diverse for sure than uh, um, Manhattan um, and tends to be, uh, can be a bit more working class as well. Uh, Queens, the new Brooklyn. Queens. <laughs> I'm guessing Queens yes. is sort of like out of suburban Queens, like uh, is just working class uh, families. And then sort of inner Queens is basically where all the people who used to live in the West Village and can't afford it moved to Williamsburg and now can't afford it and are now moving to that part of Queens. Long Island City, man. That's Long Island City in Astoria. Um, so Queens, yeah, as you mentioned, is broken down. Uh, you know, I think it makes sense to break it down by inner and outer Queens. Uh, JFK is in outer Queens. Uh, one of the interesting things about Queens is that it's actually one of the most diverse places not just in the u.s but on the planet there are so many different types of, of people there uh a very strong immigrant community um aoc uh represents a large swath of it uh and another thing that makes um queens interesting uh are are two stories one is uh recently um amazon was looking to uh you know around uh, to see where it was going to put its second headquarters and decided that it uh, was going to put uh, it uh, put one of its new offices in Long Island City, which is in Queens. Uh, and um, the local community, which felt the gentrification and displacement pressures that I mentioned earlier with respect to Harlem, pushed back on that decision and uh, so much so that Amazon actually pulled out of the project. Um, another thing is that, uh, Jackson Heights in, or Corona Heights, uh, in Queens was ground zero, uh, for, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. It is a heavily immigrant area and was absolutely just decimated by, by the virus. Uh, and it was extremely sad. Um, so that is, uh, that is, uh, Queens. It's going to play into a lot of the, uh, thoughts of, uh, casting their vote, which we'll talk about the issues in a moment. And then, uh, second last borough is, uh, Brooklyn. I'm assuming similar to sort of Queens, but probably a bit more wealthier. Um, the inner part of Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Park Slope, 
Fort Greene, wealthy middle-class families, and then sort of moving further out, less gentrification. Is that right? Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, Brooklyn is um, the largest borough, I believe, uh, according to population. Um, It is uh, also very diverse. Um, Large Hasidic Jew uh, popul- Jewish population, um, which will be a, an interesting factor. If you look at the, uh, it's really interesting to look at the 2020 presidential election results and to see how uh, those areas predominantly voted for Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, so um, yeah, you know, as I mentioned, with uh, you know gentrification being an issue, it's a huge issue here in Brooklyn as well. Um, so, uh, you know, you have, you know, tradition, one of the things about Brooklyn is that there was a lot of sort of like middle-class black wealth and families here, which are feeling the squeeze and, and, um, being pushed out of their neighborhoods. Um, so that, uh, is going to be an interesting, uh, dynamic in the race as well. And then last but not least, but yes, the, the neighborhoods that you have mentioned, uh, primarily in South Brooklyn have been a bit, have been gentrified and have seen sort of like more wealth and typically whiter fam- young families move in there. It'll be interesting too, uh, to see how the um, population shifts from the pandemic impact uh, Brooklyn. Uh, there may have been some flight from Brooklyn, though not as much as um, Manhattan. And then last uh, but not least is Staten Island, uh, an island I've never been to, but um, I hear they've got a ferry that runs quite regularly. Um, I'm assuming that it's just basically uh, uh, working in middle-class families and the closest you're going to get to uh, a lot of uh, Republicans living in New York. Exactly. Yeah, it tends to be a bit more conservative uh, as uh, the New York City population goes. It is more middle-class. Uh, lots of uh, uh, like firefighters and cops are live there, and uh, it tends to uh, skew a bit wider than some of the other uh, boroughs. Rodeo, let's talk about the issues that are dominating this particular campaign. Obviously, New York is coming out of um, uh, another long uh, lockdown uh, dealing with COVID. Uh, it's now summer. Um, certainly, if anyone's got friends or um, follows anyone in New York on Instagram. In the last two or three weeks, we've just noticed that you guys have all just been hitting the streets, having rooftop parties and just uh, starting to let the hair down, which is lovely to see. Um, what are the main issues that are dominating this particular primary campaign as you head into the summer? Well, you know, I think it really depends on who you ask that question to uh, and in what borough. I think predominantly speaking, um, you know, polling suggests that public safety is right up there uh, with the most important issues. Um, there is a, uh, you know, um, feeling that there has been a rise, there has been a up, uptick in um, shootings and violent crimes uh, in the city, no question. And um, that has a lot of people on edge. Um, but at the same time, New York was a uh, vanguard uh, in the racial justice protests of last summer. Uh, there is a strong abolitionist 
movement here in the city, a lot of mutual aid organizing around defunding the police. So those two ideas are in tension with each other, absolutely. Uh, but public safety, um, specifically shootings and violent crime, uh, are at the top of um, the list for most voters. Beyond that, I would say that other huge issues are uh, the return of small business. Um, New York thrives on tourism and things like culture, arts, and entertainment, making sure that the small business ecosystem that supports that uh, comes back uh, is big. Um, another uh, thing that is absolutely a huge issue for a lot of uh, people is uh, education. Uh, the pandemic was a lost year for a lot of families and students in terms of their education. And I, uh, another big uh, issue within the broader education um, topic is equity. A lot of uh, there are specialized high schools in the city uh, that are public schools uh, that uh, are just really shutting out black students. Um, and so there's a huge uh, focus on that with respect to, to um, education. And then, you know, I've mentioned it now three times, uh, but uh, development, uh, you know, housing, the rise of the cost of housing, the cost of rent, the rise in homelessness uh, is definitely another issue. Uh, that people are talking about. And then there's, of course, transportation uh, to sort of round it out. I was going to say, if you didn't mention transport, I was um, I was going to be surprised. I mean, it's such an integral uh, piece of infrastructure for New Yorkers, the subway. But if you've visited New York in recent times, it's clearly in dire need of an upgrade. I remember reading an article in The, um, in the New Yorker um, maybe a year or two ago that talked about the process that went into upgrading or installing that new line that runs parallel um that probably runs about 30 blocks down um manhattan i forgot the name of the line it's, a, it's the newest line that's ever been put in um and it was what, can you remember the name of the line i'm talking about sorry sam you can research it while i explain what i'm talking about here but the article went into detail about the, the 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 challenges it took to simply install a brand new subway line in New York City because of uh, environmental environmental impact issues, um, cost blowouts uh, in terms of construction, just absolute wasted money, not enough oversight and governance, um, uh, a shit fight between the mayor's office and the governor's office in Albany over who's going to pay for it, who's actually got um, oversight over this sort of stuff. And it was just it's for something that should have taken maybe six years to build in the end was like a 23 year project. And it makes Boston's big dig look like a, like a small issue. Um, and just that in itself was an insight into how hard it is to create change in terms of transportation. And I look at the New York subway and think like, that's a campaign in itself to try and get yourself over the line. However, um, I don't know if you've got any comments on that, Sam, before we then start to look at some of the candidates and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Well, the, uh, the subway you're referring to is the Second Avenue uh, subway. That's the one. Thank you so much. Um, yes. 
All right, let's unpack the candidates um, and let's start with front runners through to, you know, kind of Smokies. Um, and if anyone wants to put some money on it, maybe you can um, help us out with that as well. Um, who's, who's, who's the front runner in the mayoral race for the Democrats? Well, um, so I think, you know, depending on who you talk to, uh, it's a two-person to three-person race. There's no question that the consistent uh, front runner has been Eric Adams. Um, the other two front, his primary challenger at this late stage in the race is Catherine Garcia. Uh, she is the uh, former sanitation commissioner in New York City. Uh, and then, you know, making some noise is Maya Wiley, who has consolidated support, particularly among the activist left uh, wing base of the Democratic Party. And then there are uh there is andrew yang who has really seen his star fade um and fallen into a solid fourth place um and of course uh rounding it out we have uh scott stringer uh the current comptroller sean donovan former secretary of housing uh under obama who didn't even know the median house price uh, in uh, Brooklyn, um, it's a million dollars. He said it was like a hundred thousand. Uh, <laughs> and then we have uh, Ray McGuire, a former Wall Street uh, executive, and uh, Diane Morales, who um, was who is sort of a uh, um, left wing gadfly at this point. Ray McGuire sounds like someone he should have his own HBO show. Uh, it's it's a it's a gritty crime drama based on uh, a very uh, unique district within Queens, and uh, you know I think you should watch it. Let's talk about Eric Adams first of all. Uh, what can you tell us about Mr. Adams? Well, uh, if Ray McGuire did have his gritty crime drama on HBO, Eric Adams would be a central star in it because Eric Adams is a 22 year veteran of the NYPD. He's the current uh, borough president of uh, Brooklyn uh, and benefits uh, a great deal. Oh, I should also mention that he was a former state senator uh, from New York and benefits a great deal from having been around the political scene for a long, long time. Uh, name recognition seems to really be powering his campaign uh, and and a campaign where concerns about public safety and uh, crime are uh, at the top of the list for most voters. Having a uh, former police captain uh, running uh, tends, tends to help. Um, so uh, that is his background. He definitely has some corruption issues and uh, a mini scandal erupted uh, recently when there was controversy over where he actually lives. Um, no one is really quite certain where he lives. He seems to be living in his office in Borough Hall in downtown Brooklyn, as best anybody can tell. He also spent, seems to be living with his girlfriend in Jersey City, uh, just across the river, but in a different state, uh, which is problematic if you want to be New York City's mayor. Um, and he put together this media photo op in a building that he owns and rents out to demonstrate that he does live in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. However, 
it uh, became apparent that he was using his son's room uh, <laughs> and trying to pass it off as his own. Bravo. Very good. Uh, now turning to uh, Catherine uh, Garcia. Tell us about Catherine. I, before you do, uh, she got the endorsement for the New York Times. And I remember I was reading it last night, just doing some research in the podcast. Quite an impressive candidate. Very impressive. She's really, um, I hate to say this, uh, because it, so often it sounds trite, but it's true. She's like one of the, she's like not a traditional politician that you would think of. Uh, she's been in the city's public service, civil service for a very, very long time. Uh, she's the former commissioner of the New York City Department of Sanitation, which covers everything from like trash pickup, which is a monumental task in New York, uh, uh, to um, keeping the roads uh, plowed uh, in the winter. Uh, she's a former uh, commissioner or she's a former um, interim chair and CEO of the New York ha uh, Housing Authority. Um, she uh, led a program that delivered 200 million meals during the pandemic and uh, was a key um, public servant uh, in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Sandy when she helped the city's wastewater treatment uh, processing get back online after the hurricane. Uh, so he got the endorsement of the New York Times, uh, the New York Daily News, Cranes, um, Planned Parenthood. She's really sort of consolidating a lot of momentum and is giving uh, Eric Adams a run for his money. She lacks uh, some charisma. She lacks definite experience as a retail politician. Um, but she's been buoyed by these endorsements. Uh, it will be interesting to see how uh, ranked choice voting impacts her and whether or not uh, she benefits from it. Well, um, given that she's uh, running, I mean, second uh, in, in, in terms of, you know, polling, I I'm wondering if the next candidate, Maya Wiley, um, where her preferences and where Andrew Yang's preferences will go to support the candidacy of uh, of Garcia. Tell us a bit about more about Myla, uh, Maya Wiley. Maya Wiley is interesting. So she's a lawyer, uh, law, uh, professor, civil rights activist. She uh, has worked for the NAACP, the ACLU. Um, she was also the former chair of the Civilian Complaint Review Board uh, and a counsel to uh, Bill de Blasio. So she had a lot of inner uh, face with um, overseeing uh, poli police oversight, NYPD oversight, uh, which uh, is a big deal. Um, so when the campaign uh, was really uh, turning heads a couple months ago and people were, were um, sort of tuning into it uh, for the first time, uh, the activist left was sort of uh, in, the, in the more progressive wing of the party was basically split among three candidates. Scott Stringer, the current comptroller of uh, the city, uh, Diane Morales, who is a nonprofit executive, and Maya Wiley. Uh, Scott Stringer um, has been uh, mortally wounded by an allegation of sexual uh, misconduct. And Diane Morales' campaign has absolutely imploded over uh, allegations of staff mistreatment and union busting uh she wouldn't let her campaign unionize which is 
you know, always a problem, especially a problem when you're trying to run as the most progressive person in the Democratic primary. Um, so Maya Wiley um, seems to have uh, uh, consolidated the left's support and has been propelled by endorsements from AOC, Julian Castro, and Elizabeth Warren. And the last one uh, to just cover off is uh, Andrew Yang, which is, and it's just interesting to hear your remarks at the start, just talk about how his candidacy has just gone nowhere, which is remarkable given that, you know, he was on the stage during the debates for a long time anyway, for the Democratic primaries for president, uh, turns his attention to uh, New York mayoral race, gets a lot of media at the start naturally, but he hasn't been able to sustain that. Why, what's happened to his campaign? Well, look, you know, I think the phenomenon of Andrew Yang just points to how we live in a completely different political environment than we did, you know, 20 years ago, where fame and name recognition is more important than than ever and can really compensate for uh, the lack of a natural political political constituency or base of support. So Andrew Yang, of course, benefited immensely from the fame that he generated during his run for president. I think one other thing is that Andrew Yang attracted a lot of uh, attention and support from people uh, who uh, uh, aren't really fans of the current political system and government process. And he was offering this sort of myth mythological approach to governance uh, and, um, you know, was talking about really sort of compelling, you know, out there ideas in terms of UBI, universal basic income, but speaking about it in a way that demonstrated competency and um, outside the box thinking in the most positive connotations of that phrase. Andrew Yang, I think also, uh, you know, tragically, there was a lot of anti-Asian hate crime in the uh, United States that garnered a lot of media attention in the early spring. And I think that added another uh, level of attention to his candidacy, especially because a lot of those attacks happened in New York City. Um, and he, uh, you know, is running to be mayor of, of New York. Uh, Andrew Yang's uh, campaign has faltered for a couple of reasons. Number one is he sort of does lack uh, a natural base of support and uh, constituency. Uh, many of these uh, people running for mayor in New York have been around the scene for a long, long, long time. They have longstanding relationships um, and people who owe them favors and favors to repay. Andrew Yang, by contrast, has never even voted for mayor in New York City. So he doesn't have a lot of the relationships that are so fundamental in uh driving turnout in the city. He has failed to develop a relationship or rapport with um, the electorate and has really sort of flubbed it on uh, on some key issues. You know, I think uh, where he attracted some positive attention and his outside the box thinking around UBI, he made himself appear a bit unserious 
an unprepared one running for mayor. Like one of his first things was saying that he wanted to bring TikTok hype houses to New York. Like, dude, seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just uh, doesn't doesn't really seem to have his finger on the pulse the way some of the other candidates do. I know you've got to run, so uh, I'll, um, we should uh, wrap it up. But um, prediction time, um, how do you think this ranked choice voting system is going to play out for these candidates and who do you think is going to eventually get the nomination? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think Eric Adams is certainly, uh, is certainly um, being, you know, pegged as the front runner. It'll be interesting because polling – is sort of notoriously unreliable these days. Uh, and uh, well, that it proved to be um, as uh, reliable as, um, you know, people are treating it right now. I don't really think it will be. Catherine Garcia seems to have really uh, closed the gap. And I think, you know, I, a lot of people see this as a neck and neck race between those two. Um, if this were uh, a 50-50 race, it would be interesting. Uh, however, uh, it's not. So um, I think what we're looking at is Maya Wa- is um, a race that's really going to come down to Eric Adams and Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley. Do Maya Wiley's supporters, you know, rank uh, rank Catherine Garcia higher uh, than Eric Adams? I think. Definitely. And then I think, you know, to the extent that people are voting for Scott Stringer and, uh, you know, Sean Donovan and Ray McGuire, those people, you know, certainly everyone except for Scott Stringer, they're likely to rank Catherine Garcia higher than Eric Adams. So I think that uh, Catherine Garcia has definitely got a real shot at this thing. Uh, But Eric Adams is the uh, undisputed front runner. Other than that, I don't think that Maya Wiley has is, is really got uh, a broad enough base of support um, to, to pull ahead in ranked choice voting. However, um, uh, uh, it, it will be interesting to see how it goes. Yep, certainly will. So Tuesday morning, Wednesday, so Tuesday, uh, the 22nd of June is the date for the final day of voting in the New York primaries for mayor of New York City. That is Wednesday morning through into the Wednesday afternoon, uh, East Coast Australian time. We uh, look forward to seeing the results of that uh, that primary. Sam, once again, love to see you. And thank you so much for giving us a, uh, uh, a speed dating version of uh, the uh, ins and outs of the, the uh, um, mayoral election in New York City. Have you voted? My, I haven't yet. Friday. I'm voting on Friday. So you'll need to set aside about six hours for that. That'll be good. Seriously, I, and, and like quite a bit of physical space. It's like going to be like the Dead Sea Scroll, man. <laughs> Brother, great to see you again. Uh, best best Likewise. of luck and uh, enjoy your summer. Thank you, you too.